because it drained the fat too much. But um, it's good for making panini that's, sandwiches. That's the whole point. That's the whole point. I know, it but I like a fat. little bit of fat. I like a little bit of juice in and my that's chicken. That's why meats. you're not a boxing champion, Sean. Howdy, you're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share our views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zolkowski. I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elfstrom. He was a taciturn champ to a lovable pitch man. This native Texan's career included a break so long, it was longer than most of our careers. This week, we bring you part two of the life and times of Texas boxing legend, George Foreman. But first... What's your favorite type of Texas tomato? Well, I'm just going to shut it down and say, you know, I, I happen to live close to the tomato capital of the world now. That would be the fantastic Jacksonville tomatoes. Texas-owned Jacksonville tomatoes. Check them out if you can. They're delicious. My favorite is green. Green tomatoes. That's my favorite Texas. If they're grown in Texas. You just have to tomatoes. be, like, contrarian in general. <laughs> I don't know a lot about tomatoes. I know heirloom tomatoes, and I know little baby Roma tomatoes, but I don't know if they're grown in Texas. But I like locally grown green tomatoes. So there you go. There you go. Get really good locally grown green tomatoes at the McKinney Farmer's Market in the summer. Well, my favorite tomato in Texas is uh, Whataburger Fancy Ketchup. (laughs) Whatever whatever goes in that um, would be my favorite. That is probably the best. Yeah. But in all seriousness, uh, I, I really love like, you know, any heirloom type of tomato, and uh, we've gotten some locally grown here in Texas that I uh, couldn't, you know, they're not branded or anything; they're just local. So, uh, shout out to local farmers. Go Texan! Mm-hmm. For those who aren't but in yeah, Texas, fancy te- ketchup is good. Yeah, we know fan- the, ke- the There's something magical in the Whataburger ketchup. Uh, we'll have to f- in the future. We'll just have to do. What's your favorite? Waterburger ketchup. (laughs) From a rough childhood in Houston, George Foreman rose through the boxing ranks to become virtually an unstoppable force of the boxing world. After winning Olympic gold, he went on to dominate the professional ranks as a world champion until he met his match in Africa against Muhammad Ali in the famed Rumble in the Jungle in 1974. A series of ups and downs after that famed bout resulted in an early retirement at the age of 28 to devote himself to God and raising a family. Much to everyone's surprise, though, Foreman staged a comeback when he was 38 years old, practically geriatric in the boxing world. According to his autobiography, Foreman returned primarily to raise money for his youth center, which had already consumed most of the money he'd earned as a boxer. He also stated that he wanted to fight Mike Tyson, who was then the dominant boxer in the boxing world. Anyone who might have, been, anyone who might have doubted that he still had the necessary skills and abilities to be a threat, would find themselves proven wrong, and his first return fight ended in a knockout of his opponent, Steve Zowski, in only four rounds. Nevertheless, Foreman weighed 267 pounds at the time of the fight and was blatantly out of shape. He received some criticism for his comeback, but he countered saying he wanted to prove that age was not a barrier and to show that, 30, and to show that 40 was not a, quote, death sentence. Foreman continued to prove his detractors wrong. He won four more bouts in 1987, visibly growing slimmer and more fit as the year went on. In 1988 was even a more successful year, and he won nine times with no losses. While none of his opponents were top contenders, he did manage to knock out 
former light heavyweight and cruiserweight champion Dwight Muhammad Kwai in the seventh round. Foreman's fighting style had, of necessity, changed. He still had much of his mobility from his youth and obviously still had his power, but due to his weight gain, he couldn't keep his balance after throwing big punches and couldn't deliver rapid combinations. He could still deliver single hard blows, and the late-round fatigue that had always troubled him as a young man was, surprisingly, gone. Foreman claimed that this was because of his new, relaxed style, and that his lack of stamina in his youth was caused by nervous tension. For his comeback, Foreman reversed his former aloof public persona. He even sold his name and likeness to advertise everything from grills to mufflers. The smiling, friendly George that seems iconic now was born. During his retirement, he'd become friends with Ali and took a note from his former rival, positioning himself as a celebrity outside of the ring as well as in. George's winning streak continued through 89, and he won five more fights, most impressively against Burt Cooper, who went on to challenge heavyweight champ Evander Holyfield. In 1990, he faced Jerry Cooney, who was coming off his own period of inactivity. Cooney had the upper hand in the first round, but Foreman came back in the second and knocked out his opponent. Foreman won a total five fights that year. In 1991, Foreman found himself once more competing for the heavyweight title, this time against champion Evander Holyfield. Holyfield was in tremendous shape, and he weighed a very efficient 208 pounds. By contrast, Foreman was a hefty 257 pounds, and no one expected the 42-year-old boxer to win. Nevertheless, George Foreman charged toward his opponent in the pay-per-view event, absorbing Holyfield's best combinations and occasionally landing his own powerful blows. Holyfield was too tough and skilled for Foreman to knock down, but George impressed many people by lasting the full 12 rounds and forcing a decision, which he did lose. In 1993, Foreman had another title shot, this time for the vacant WBO title against Tommy Morrison. Morrison fought a smart battle and kept his distance instead of trading blows with Foreman. His tactics paid off, and Morrison won a unanimous decision against George after the full 12-round fight. In 94, Foreman got another shot at the title, this time against Michael Moorer, who had defeated Holyfield to earn it. Because George had lost his fight against Morrison, he was unranked and could not demand a fight. But because of his fame and the fact that he was 19 years older, Moorer agreed, believing he could make a lot of money without much risk to his title. The match took place on November 5th in Las Vegas. Foreman wore the same red trunks he'd worn 20 years earlier when he lost his title to Ali. This time, he was the underdog, and by a far larger margin than his opponent two decades earlier. Moore was only six years old the last time Foreman had held the title. Much like his bout with Holyfield, Foreman waded into the fight and was easily outboxed by his opponent for nine rounds. It looked like George was going to have another match against a much younger opponent that he had lasted through, but then would lose to a decision. In the 10th round, Foreman landed a number of punches, and then a short right to Moore's chin that left a gash in his bottom lip and sent him to the canvas. A 10 count later, and just like that, George Foreman had regained the title that he lost to Muhammad Ali 20 years earlier. As the crowd erupted in cheers, Foreman moved to his corner and knelt down to pray. With his amazing victory, George broke three records at once. At the age of 45, he became the oldest fighter to win the World Heavyweight Championship. With a span of 20 years, he broke the record for the longest interval between winning his first and second titles. And finally, the spread of 19 years between the two fighters' ages was the largest of any championship fight. Almost immediately, Foreman began talking about a fight 
against Iron Mike Tyson, who is no longer the champion. The bout would be a battle between the oldest person ever to win the belt and the youngest person. The WBA, which was one of the sanctioning bodies of his two titles, insisted that he fight the number one challenger, Tony Tucker, instead. Now, Foreman refused for reasons he's never explained, and he was stripped of the WBA title. George's next fight was against Axel Schulz to defend his WBO title. Although Schulz was considered a major underdog, he gave a good showing, keeping Foreman at a distance. By the time the bout ended, Foreman had swelling over one eye, and his win by decision was considered controversial. The boxing body ordered an immediate rematch, but Foreman refused the terms, and his remaining title was stripped. Although this meant he no longer had any titles, he was considered the, quote, lineal heavyweight champion, meaning he was the last person to beat someone to earn the title. Boxing Rata. Yeah. <laughs> the, the weird world of uh, multiple boxing associations and the titles. In 1996, George returned to boxing again, going to Tokyo to win an easy victory over an unrated opponent in a 12-round decision. In 97, he faced contender Lou Savaris. In 97, he faced contender Lou Savaris, who gave him a much closer contest that he also won by decision. Later that same year, Foreman got a chance to win the right to go for the title again, fighting Shannon Briggs for the opportunity to face now-champion Lennox Lewis. This turned out to be another close match that came to a decision, but in this case, it was Foreman who lost. In fact, the match was so close, he lost by a total of only eight points. Foreman was calm about his loss to Briggs and announced his final retirement soon afterwards. He planned one more fight, this one against Larry Holmes, to celebrate both their birthdays. It was set to take place at the Astronome as a pay-per-view event. Foreman stood to make $10 million, but negotiations fell through and the fight was canceled. Respected as he was, Foreman became a valued boxing analyst for HBO and a beloved character on Futurama. <laughs> Foreman announced one more comeback in 2004, hoping to prove that 55 was like 40, not a death sentence. The bout never materialized, though, and in the end, his fight with Shannon Briggs proved to be his last. Even if it weren't for the records that he broke with his amazing second championship win, George Foreman's boxing career would be amazing. Out of 81 fights, he won 76, and of those 76 wins, 68 were by knockout. Of his five losses, only one, one that lost him the title, was by a knockout. Now, Foreman had a somewhat tumultuous private life. He married four women up until 1985, Adrian Calhoun, Cynthia Lewis, Sharon Goodson, and Andrea Skeet. In 1985, he married Mary Joan Martley, and he's been married to her ever since. Perhaps as much as his boxing career and his advertising acumen, which we'll get into in a minute, George Foreman is famous for having five sons who were also named George Edward Foreman. Now, the original, or senior George, has explained this choice by saying, quote, I named all my sons George Edward Foreman so they would always have something in common. I say to them, if one of us goes up, then we all go up together, and if one of us goes down, we all go down together. Now, George III is also a boxer and an entrepreneur, while George IV has appeared in the reality TV show American Grit. George Foreman's other claim to fame, beyond boxing, that everyone knows about, came after his return from retirement. When asked about his success, he attributed it to his healthy eating. 
Salton Incorporated was looking for a spokesperson for its new fat-reducing electric grill. While Hulk Hogan had previously been approached for the job, he decided to pitch the Hulkmania meatball maker instead. Obviously, uh, the correct choice, since we all have a Hulkamania meatball maker on our kitchen counters. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Can't cook without it. <laughs> In 1999, Salton paid Foreman $138 million for the right to use his name. Before that, he had made about 40% of the profits on each grill sold, or about $4.5 million a month during peak sales. As of 2009, that that doesn't make sense. No, 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 that that, that does make sense. They were selling like hotcakes. That's what I'm saying. I'm being incredulous. $4.5 million a month? Just for having your name on a grill. Wow. Yeah. So, as of 2009, the George Foreman Grill had sold over 100 million units and was estimated that Foreman had made more than $200 million total. That was 2009. Yeah. That was much more than he ever made in his career as a boxer. In October of 2017, George claimed that his inspiration for getting involved with the grill came from his defeat at the hands of Ali. Right after being knocked out by Ali, he had a hallucination that a piece of talking meat demanded that he grill it. Realizing how lucrative these endorsements can be, George recently began endorsing InventHelp, the company that stages Inpex, which is the Invention and New Product Exposition, which is America's largest trade show. He also has a clothing line and several books, but we will always remember his electric grill. George Foreman has been on television numerous times, in addition to his appearances during matches. In 1993, Foreman starred in the semi-autobiographical sitcom George on ABC. Ten episodes were shot, but only nine aired. George and his family were also featured in a reality show named Family Foreman on TV Land in 2008. Even more recently, he was featured on NBC's Better Late Than Never, alongside William Shatner, Henry Winkler, and Terry Bradshaw. The show has been renewed for a second season, and premiered on January 2018. So, we at Come and Take It salute the life and times of a man who is not done with Texas and not done with the world at all. So, congratulations, George Foreman, on a life well-lived. So, first of all, that show, Better Late Than Never, if you haven't watched it, is absolutely hilarious. It is amazing. And the funniest person on there is Henry Winkler. <laughs> He's actually the funniest person. It's a, it's a, it's a scripted reality show. Uh, these, these four celebrities who are playing themselves are traveling around and doing things and, and getting into hijinks. And oh it is, boy. it is for network television, you know, old people candy. It is actually quite funny. Oh, wow. Well, I'll have to check that one out. I have not seen that. I was going to point well, out, I, though... I'm amazed you haven't, because I, it's got I, Shatner. I, I do like candy. I do want to point out, though, there was a story that came out at the towards the end of last year. Um, George Foreman, because Steven Seagal was in the news, George Foreman challenged Steven Seagal to a one-on-one fight in Vegas for 10 rounds. He said, <laughs> I use boxing, you can use whatever. 10 rounds in Vegas. And then he followed up that twi- tweet with, no weapons, hand-to-hand only. Well, who's more fat at this point? Steven Seagal or George Foreman? Well, I want to pick George in this one because I, I, I want listen, to pick George to win this fight. I because... would easily pick George Foreman. <laughs> I would easily pick George Foreman. <laughs> and I think it would be 
incredible. There's also yeah. a hilarious twit Twitter chain of uh, of responses around that. But, but that was kind of a you know, I think the thing is this is like uh, if history has taught us anything, Mister Zagal, it is that uh, you can never count George Foreman out, ever, no. No. For, forever. Only that, one time, only one time could you count him out. <laughs> one time, and out of so <laughs> many bouts, out of so many boxing matches, and I can remember. You know, his comeback career, I, you know, I remember seeing some of those fights in like high school and huh. people talking about it and, and, and especially being in the Houston area because I was living in Houston at the time. And I remember um, I had a friend who was really into boxing and he said, you know, it's so funny. You see George Foreman and he just he looks kind of like this big flabby guy and he steps on the scale and they do the weigh in and then he turns around and he like gives the big flex pose and all of that loose skin just sort of yeah. magically like yeah. slips up around yeah. his massive torso and like musculature. So yeah. he, he's he's a he was an incredible athlete and an, an incredibly strong man. So I Yeah. And I, I remember I just remember like all the like nineteen eighty eight when it was announced he was coming back, it's like all the jokes because they're like, Oh my gosh, look at this fat guy. That's gonna be crazy. Then he had that first fight. And people were like, ah, this guy's a shrub and he's a, but he's going to still lose. Like, whoa, he, he did something. And then when he, when he, when he came and he fought, uh, Evander Holyfield is like, whoa, wow, hold on, hold the door. This guy, you know, there's something here. Like, I remember just, I remember seeing film, a video of him and those big arms just swinging oh, and man. just, just swinging and you saw and you like you said you you saw those huge arms but you saw those muscular arms coming at you like <laughs> i don't want to get hit by just that run <laughs> i can't imagine well you know uh, it's, it's just it's it's like fighting a uh you know it's like fighting a steam engine or something i mean the guy's just he's yeah he's massively powerful he's just he just doesn't have the speed the stamina but it's interesting that in his later life you know, maybe it was a relaxed lifestyle. Maybe it was just like, hey, you know, whatever happens, happens. He just didn't have the stress or the strain. Like, he was able to come at it from a very, you know, I don't want to invoke the Seagal here, but kind of a Buddhist-like approach to, like, boxing of, you know, I'm just going to go in there and do my thing, and I'm not going to be hyper-intense about it. I'm not going to burn a lot of energy jumping yeah. around. I think that he, I think that he talked about in his in his autobiography and in his interviews and especially you know he's he's spoken so many times on 700 club and you know trinity bible network and all these you know you know in churches and stuff so he's he's spoken a lot about himself and about himself and about that lifestyle that he had before you know that that he was that the fight in the ring in a lot of ways was the outlet for him of the fight in his life and that that stone face that he took on that persona was was hiding was was sheltering like a, a a like you said a nervous anxiety a nervous energy of constantly feeling he had to prove himself so he had to prove himself by being the baddest dude that there was and he had to prove himself by getting in the ring and just just obliterating people um and and it ultimately you know wasn't it was gonna it ended up nearly killing him so i think that the you know with his changing his life and you know not caring so much about you know not being so concerned about what other people think and about fighting other people outside of the ring fighting the world outside of the ring i think was the biggest change in his outlook he embraced the world and he embraced positivity and embraced 
humor and he, you know, he, he was one of the funniest people in the world, uh, you know, in, in terms of being a, being an athlete. I mean, not like Eddie Murphy funny, but just, he just had a natural effervescence and, and personality in that second career. That was such a sharp contrast to, you know, everything. And he had that, that, you know, we've all seen him, that, that wink in his eye, you know, that gleam in his eye of like, this is fun. I'm having fun with my life now. And, and so I think that's what's remarkable about his second career was just that that fun that he seemed to have. And, and it didn't bother him that he lost matches so much. And he, he, he wanted to win, but he wanted to make money. That was he was clear. I'm in this to make money uh, initially for his ministry. And then ultimately, I'm just going to make money. I'm going to make the most, but I'm just going to make the most of this. So Yeah, well, maybe it's like the Blues Brothers, you know. He's on a mission from Gad. Yeah. Well, and then you know, I've I've seen multiple interviews with Hulk Hogan talking about how you know, well, he turned down the opportunity for that grill, um, and it is a true story. He did turn down the opportunity yep. for that grill, and it cost him <laughs> so well, much. Money. Nobody knew that that darn grill was going to take off the way it did. And also, by the way, you know, it may not have sold that that well if it had been uh, you know Hulk Hogan. I yeah, I mean, they, that's the point I was going to make was that, you know, um, the fact that it was so successful, why, you know, tribute it to George Foreman and his personality. Yeah, because so affable. I'm not sure. I mean, it could, would have just been another forgotten appliance, uh, I, mean, I think, if it wasn't for the force of his personality. I right. And if he's, making, if he's making $4.5 million a month in the first year at 40% profit on each girl sold, then 138 million is worth it. I mean, it's a well, small price to pay. Here's what I'm going to do today. Okay, you're going to get up. You're going to eat some some you know a nice. Uh, you can have some Earl Campbell sausage in the morning for breakfast, and then for lunch you're going to like on your George Foreman grill. Well, I was going to say then you're going to throw a nice Texas steak on the George Foreman grill, drain all that fat off, just eat nice and lean. Then maybe you do, you know, 30 minutes on the uh, total exercise bench that uh, Chuck Norris sells. And, you know, total gym. Total gym. I'm going to do some yeah, total Nolan, gym time. That steak is a Nolan Ryan steak, buddy. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I'm going to Nolan Ryan steak on the George Ford Grill before I go work out on my Chuck Norris total gym. Yeah, that, I, I I had a George Foreman grill. I didn't. I liked it for sandwiches. Actually, it was really good for making paninis, but uh, I didn't care for cooking meat on it because it did drain the fat too much. But, um, um. It's good for making panini that's, sandwiches. That's the whole point. That's the whole Sean. point. I know, it but I like a little bit of fat. I like a little bit of juice in and my that's chicken. That's why you're not a boxing champion, Sean. I know. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I I do outweigh George Foreman, though. Uh, but well, yeah, hey, and more power to him. You know, it, it, I, I I really I've seen some videos on the web and stuff on the Invent Help, uh, the in the Inpex, then then and it's sort of like a sort of like a Shark Tank on the road show um, trade show deal. And it's, I think it is really interesting and really neat. And that, and that's, that's great. You know, he's, he's lending his name to helping other people, you know, make money and, and do things in, in, uh, in the world. So, and then he's got five kids that are named after him. <laughs> so we all have something in common. We all go down yeah. together. It's a great uh, yeah. I remember that was the other thing I remember. Like, he has five children today, and all named George Foreman. It's awesome. All right, so so here you go. Here's the here's the million dollar question: Texans, tough fighters, George Foreman, Jim Bowie. <laughs> 
Who do you pick? Who's in a fair the, fight? In a fair fight. Does anybody have a sword cane? <laughs> I'm going with George Foreman. Every time. Smile on George Foreman. You're going to come up big. Yeah. I'd have to go with Foreman. I think Foreman's got the, Foreman's got the powers and the skills. So. Pound for pound. Hand to hand. Hand to hand. Unarmed combat. George Foreman. <laughs> you throw a booty knife in there, bets are off. But, uh, there's a picture. We have a picture of him holding like a, a, a tiger, like literally <laughs> holding a small tiger. And you're like, he, it's George Foreman every time. Hey, well, we salute you, George. Uh, we we love you. Texas loves you. We're glad that uh, we can call you one of our own, uh, one of the greatest that ever was and ever will be. That wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstable.com. We'd love to hear from you, so like and share us on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast, or go to brainstable.com and leave some feedback. You can find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. Why not follow us individually, too? I'm on Twitter at Mr. Jabba. I'm Max Sean, two ends. And I'm Scotticus. A big special thank you to our good friend James Abendroth for helping us to research and write this episode. You can find him on Twitter and Instagram at Blackguard Press, and find his fiction work at blackguardpress.com. If you love this show, get out there and tell your friends and leave a review on iTunes because that really helps us out to find listeners just like you. And if you'd like to support the show financially, please visit patreon.com slash texaspodcast where you too can become a come-and-take-it Texas Ranger. We hope you join us next time. And remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas wants you anyway. <laughs> <laughs>